0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this afternoon. I'm Cassie Hough and a very happy Monday to you. Now, it's no secret that it's hard to find workers across many industries, but agriculture has really felt the pinch in particular. But soon I'll bring you a story about employers who are having success looking outside the box when it comes to hiring people who uh, perhaps would not normally be attracted to their industry.
3: The labour market is definitely tightening and so the wider we cast our net, the better. And so we've been able to access a group of employers who traditionally would have been potentially overlooked. The other aspect which is perhaps sometimes overlooked is that as a a long-standing local organisation, there's a a sense of commitment to helping build a, a stronger local community.
2: More on that in the next half hour or so. And uh, we'll take a look at what harvest and overseas drought could mean for cattle supply and demand over the next few months. That's coming up. But first up today, Australia's top machine shearers have reclaimed the Trans-Tasman Crown, winning the 2022 Australian Shearing and Wool Handling Championships at Bendigo on the weekend. But... The New Zealand blade shearers are the ones that maintained their country's unbeaten record in the tra- Trans-Tasman tests, Now the Australian machine-shearing team was uh, led by Daniel McIntyre from New South Wales and supported by South Australian Nathan Meaney and Sam Mackerel from Rochester. But uh, we tried to catch up with Nathan. He wasn't available, but he wasn't the only person there. And it seems a lot of people had to go to a, a lot of effort to even get to the championships. The New South Wales team dodged floodwaters and came by Boat, car, and even helicopter to make it to the competition on time. Georgie Randiatara is the wool handling manager and she explains how they all got there.
4: Oh, absolutely, like quite stressful for all my wool handling team. I had a novice wool handler that traveled from Geraldry, usually takes about, um, you know, probably about four hours or so to go all the way to Gill. They had to go a nine-hour trip right around Orange, come up through that way. Uh, she was saying it costs over $900 in fuel, and, she, and that's one way, and she couldn't make it to the Nationals. You know, it was really sad because she's a, she was a senior Wuhaner. As for one of my other novice Wuhena, Char, Charlie Baker, he's actually from Inveril and they had to fly him. When he rang me, this is um, Georgie, we've just been flown in by chopper onto one of the properties in Weewool and I'm not sure if I can make it. And I said, it's, it's all right, mate, you know. You just let me know when they fly you out. So that was a week later, I think, they flew him out back to Inverell and they were flying shearers and shearing teams all out on choppers to properties, help farmers.
5: For animal welfare yeah. issues, yeah.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. So the stress of it all is really like, um, with wool handlers, they're not on... You know, good wages, for an example, compared to sharers. And at that time, we've had um, issues just because of the rain. So when the shearers are not working, the wool handers don't
5: get paid. So to get competitors here, you've had chopper flights, you've had huge detours, you've got people who are literally getting out of islands um, due to being surrounded by floodwaters, all to, to come and compete. Yeah. That's extraordinary.
4: And, you know... Really, these guys had no work for three weeks, they lost their whole income. Uh, So, you know, I was going to fly down to uh, from Dubbo to Bendigo or or Wagga to Bendigo, but in the end, um, I had problems with the car. My car drew to mud driving and muddy and you know, ripping my sump or not sump uh, splash cover and and then tyres you name it, <laughs> potholes, giant potholes. So it's what we do. But in the end, we just sort of pulled them together knowing their finances tight and says, like, okay, we'll just feed each other and, and look after each other that way or accommodation. You know, it's it's uh, pretty hard.
5: Uh, there's some really good points that you raise there too, Georgie. The idea that um, a lot of people see shortages in shearing and, like, you think, oh, everyone's making a fortune in this industry. It's like... N- you need the work to keep happening and, and wool handlers aren't being paid extraordinary amounts of money as well so they're going to want to keep working even when all of this weather is, is meaning it's almost impossible to get around
4: Absolutely correct there um, The saddest thing is, is that uh, you know, there's a struggle of shortage of wool handlers you know, It's great that the shearers are looked after You know, and they're doing really well they you know shearing a lot of good sheep out there but there's some, um, you know, rough ones out there as well. But for the warhead, especially experienced ones, you know, um, I believe that they should be paid more. And they'll come. They'll come back to work. You know, they'll come out of retirement. and have to. You just pay it, and they'll come in. It's such a blessing as a wool classer to have them. You know, come in and they're so happy. You can't um, burn out. You're good staff. That's what's been happening. Mm. They think, oh, yeah, experience, she can handle four by herself,
2: or two for four. It's Mm. ridiculous. And you've got to have the numbers. Georgie Rangiatara, wool handling manager with the New South Wales Shearing and Wool Handling team speaking to Warwick Long there at Bendigo. Big event there and Australia did win in the machine shearing side of things but not in the blade shearing. But hopefully we'll hear from one of the people from that award-winning team soon. Uh, But moving away from sheep handling to maybe more to cattle as cereal crops across eastern Australia head into the grain depots at uh, Feed... Or to deliver feed, um, uh, passively feed quality grain. Cattle producers are anticipating an increase in the domestic grain supply and therefore looking to pay less maybe for that grain. So, what does it mean for the beef market over the coming months? Alice Marshall posed this question to Auctions, Auctions Plus Chief Executive Tim McRae.
6: Yeah, look, it's been a very interesting, particularly last two weeks in the cattle market. Um, you yeah, we've still got prices that are at historically very good levels. They've come back a bit from where they were, but you know, everyone was expecting that to, to come back. Um, what we've seen from our results on Auctions Plus is we've seen some very cautious buying. And I think that would be the best way to sort of talk about particularly the feedlot side of the um of the industry is very cautious. I mean, costs are through the roof on everything, and that's really the big difference, I think, from previous years. Um, you know, we've had big, big harvest the last two years with the wet season, but I think this year the cost of everything is through the roof, and I think that's going to make a lot of operators a lot more cautious, whether it is buying the feed grain or it's buying the cattle or it's, you know, it's diesel and it's, it's labour. Everyone's radar is right up on um, just doing their sums and, and you know, seeing where they can make a buck.
7: So you think that grain fed, the grain-fed beef industry especially is, is noting all of this grain coming into the market, but not necessarily jumping on it right now and and increasing their on-feed numbers just yet?
6: No, I think they're fully aware that there's going to be plenty of it. Um, I don't think sourcing it is going to be an issue. I mean, certainly the logistics of getting it may be an issue, hearing some of the stories about how bad the roads are. But you know, I think they're still going to be looking at that big cost of cattle um, and doing their sums very carefully. and you know, at the end of the day it's what they make, you know, profit on a dollar a head, and whether that's from the cattle or the grain, I think they're they're doing their sum very carefully as they as they normally do, but I think particularly this year it's also going to be about can they logistically access it, can they logistically access the grain or the cattle, um, you know, to make sure they can keep their, their supply chains happy.
7: And when it comes to what's going to happen over the the next coming months, over the rest of the year, we've seen, I guess, some interesting stats over the September quarter with cattle on feed numbers have actually dropped 11% or 11.7% over the recent quarter, but feedlot capacity has been increased to 1.5 million head nationally. Do you think that that's a sort of fair indication of people are just sort of sitting back and and waiting to see what's going to happen?
6: Yeah, Um, look, the the expansion of the feedlot industry over the last 20, 30 years has just been a constant gradual growth. Um, and that's reflected in our supply chains and, and you know, access into overseas markets and particularly the quality of beef that's, that's offered through every market. Um, I think what we're seeing with those numbers back in the feedlots in, in the last few months, I do think it's a, an access to cattle. But I think for me, that also represents the awareness and that, again, the cautiousness they're having to their costs Um, I think that's really high on their radar as opposed to, you know, the last, I suppose we could call it the two COVID disrupted years where it was was really just, you know, keep operating and and see where we end up. I think at the moment it's very much, okay, this is where we've ended up and, and can I make money? Can I, you know, make this work? You know, you can only keep buying cattle and losing money. You know, particularly if you're at the processing end of the chain for, for a certain amount of time until sort of tough decisions need to be made and, and I think we're looking at that at the moment with some of the cattle prices. Um, we're seeing some pressure on the you know, the feeder steer price to come back. Um, that's not a surprise. There's a lot of cattle out in the paddock that are flush with feed and, and boggy feed um, but I still think it's a... representative of the feedlots in that quarter, really doing their numbers and and being very judicious and cautious about what they buy. I think after Christmas, post-Christmas is going to be the really interesting time. Um, I think particularly through central and southern Queensland, if that the rain, I mean, we don't want to say rain too much, but I think there's still that traditional seasonal period that they're looking to come through central Queensland. And I think if that was to occur, we're going to see some big heavy feeder steers coming out of areas at the moment that are probably flooded, but you know are going to be certainly flushed with feed once summer hits. You know, I think it's going to be an interesting time come February, March, April next year. Maybe when things get back into normal, but what's normal anymore? And, and I think we'll see certainly a, a feeder price that's certainly lower than it is now, and there'll still be a pretty good access to a lot of feed grain.
7: We're hearing now, obviously the US has been in drought for the past couple of years, and we have seen their herd number steadily declining because of that. US beef production is tipped to fall by 3% next year. Is there going to be an opportunity for Australian producers come 2023?
6: I think it's the real underlying sleeper for the Australian export industry. Um, You know, this... And every Australian cattle producer can sympathise with the, the, the drought and the liquidation side of what's going on in the US. Um, but you know, here's a market that that you know historically has has been one of our biggest export markets, taking a lot of our you know cheaper manufacturing side of beef. But they're also our biggest competitor into a lot of markets. Um, North Asia, you know, Australian and US beef traditionally has gone head to head. And when we see those turnoff numbers come back, the volume that that we could see in some export markets will be lower, and I think that's going to really be a positive both in the US market looking for more Australian beef, but also I think in the the overseas markets I'll be looking for a lot of product.
2: Australian beef producers can very much so identify with that liquidation and just how terrible it is to go through it. But uh, on the flip side, Australia is uh, capitalising now after going through a similar situation a few years ago in that uh, horrific drought that much of the the country faced. That was Auctions Plus Chief Economist Tim McRae speaking with Alice Marshall about what this uh, potentially extra feed quality grain could mean for the cattle market. It's 17 minutes past 12.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: We know with excess rain comes disease pressure and one disease commonly found around uh, at the moment in some areas is powdery mildew. But the University of Adelaide has found a new crop species resistant to the disease. Adelaide University's Associate Professor Matt Denton explains the project looking at this.
5: So droughts have a devastating effect um, for farmers and in particular for uh, feeding their livestock and we all know that um, it's, it's a real issue when droughts have an impact on the feed availability so there's a real need for developing resilience in pastures to provide that feed base for livestock.
8: And what are some of the things you're working towards to obtain some of that resilience?
5: So we're trying to develop pastures that are more resilient. We're trying to develop pastures that grow longer during the season. And also pastures that cover the soil better to provide better protection for the soil from erosion and things like that. The way that we're doing that is we are using um, new pasture species and cultivars that have uh, better developed traits that um, can persist better under drought conditions. We're also using new species and we're working with farmers to implement different management to um, allow pastures to be grown in a more effective means.
8: So the project is relatively new. How long has it been going for exactly?
5: So the project has only been running for about six months. We'll run for about two and a half years.
8: In terms of breaking down the project, what's the timeline and what are you hoping to achieve in the next six months, year and then at the end of the two and a half years entirely?
5: So one of the key things that we're doing in this project is we're working very closely with farming system groups and farmers And so what we're doing with that project is we have a range of different demonstrations that are on farmers' properties, Um, and so there's great engagement with the farmers. And what we hope through that process is that some of those demonstrations will allow other farmers to see the research in action and to, to demonstrate the benefits that they could apply on their own farms. And in that way, this project will expand the impact to other regions and to other growers who are open to seeing the uh, activities we've implemented on their farms.
8: When it comes to soil resistance, how important is it? We hear it a lot, soil resistance. We're currently very wet, but we stand here talking from a drought hub organised event, which almost feels a little bit contradictory. Um, so, yeah, how important is that for the future to prepare um, soils for what's to come?
5: The, the key thing is that farmers, the, the growth of their crops and their pastures is dictated by rainfall. So that's that's the key thing to note. So farmers are always watching the rainfall. Fall to understand how well their, their crops and pastures will grow and they're at the mercy of those climatic um, events. So um, while this has been a a very wet year, there's drought will be just around the corner and um, the farmers need to prepare in advance in order to have resilience in their systems to be able to cope during the bad times. So it's actually been a really wet year this year and uh, so the, the pastures have grown well but we know that drought is just around the corner. One of the things that we've found this year, even though it's been a really wet spring, is that what that's brought is a lot of disease to the pastures and so there's been some powdery mildew which has really affected a lot of the pastures that we've been working with particularly in some of the lower rainfall regions and some of the new species that we're implementing have actually got resistance to powdery mildew so our pastures that we've implemented in demonstrations are nice and lush and green whereas some of the surrounding farmer practice they're susceptible to this powdery mildew so the disease is having a real impact and it's one of the side benefits of our project. I think we have to do everything that we can to manage the systems to um, provide as much resilience as possible and and pastures are a big part of that in terms of crop and livestock systems so, um, very much it's, there's no silver bullet in, in this sense. There's, we can have some better crop and pasture varieties and we can also improve our management, but it's a combination of those things and working very closely with farmers and farming system groups to make sure that we bring about those changes so that we can provide as much resilience as we can to those communities.
2: University of Adelaide's Associate Professor Matt Denton speaking with Dimitri at Panagiotaris there. And uh, speaking of crops, the grain harvest is uh, well underway now across much of South Australia. More and more heavy vehicles are using country roads, which can cause hold-ups for holidaymakers and locals travelling around, particularly as we get into the school holidays. Minister for Regional Roads Jeff Brock is urging drivers to remain cautious as the delayed harvest may now see heavy vehicles on roads for much longer, beyond January in some cases.
9: Well, first up, uh, there's uh, not only the, the delay on the harvest, but there's, there's also the issue is uh, there's been a lot of rain. at the, So it's two things. I'm just encouraging people to be very, very careful on the regional roads in particular, specifically around farming communities, because as, as you indicated, the the farming harvest has been delayed because of the rain, etc., and getting into the paddocks. But it's also coinciding with there's a lot of t- uh, tourists on the road at the same time, and also the school holidays are coming up very, very soon. So I'm just urging people, please, just to be very, very careful on the roads, and I know that the farmers as they're coming, uh, the truck drivers are coming in. They're very aware of the oncoming traffic and the traffic on the roads themselves. But certainly, I just ask everybody to be uh, very, very, keep, uh, very patient. Be, keep to the speed limit. Be very attentive because at the end of the day, as we've lost a f- quite a few people with, uh, with accidents just recently and we don't want it anymore.
1: So what should drivers be looking out for while they're on the roads?
9: Well, look, out to make certain that there's, there's no equipment coming in off the off the side roads. Also, the fact is that it's a lot of dust sometimes from the harvesting and also once they've done the Harvest, they go back and they bring it back to the slash a lot more. That is when there's a lot of, and I've been on the road just recently, and there's been, even now there's a lot of uh, dust from from the uh, from the product being slashed down there, coming across onto the road. And as we get going towards the school season and the holiday season, paddocks will start to dry out a lot more. There'll be a lot more dust coming from the paddocks, so be very very aware of that because you might be able to see in front of you, but you may be impatient and you want to pass the car in front of you, but there may be a car coming the other direction which is then oblivated by the dust coming from the paddocks. But but also just to make certain that two things that because of the rain there's been quite a few uh, potholes on some of the roads so please be very aware of that and there's another department of transport is going around and uh, f- fulfilling those holes as much as they can but just to slow down when approaching slower vehicles and also when look for vehicles entering or, le- or leaving the road. And one other thing that I encourage people to do and I do this all the time, keep your headlights on when driving both in the day and the night.
1: Will the delays to harvest mean heavy vehicles and farming machinery will be on regional roads for longer this year
9: well, um, in my travels, depends which location you're talking about. Around the Port Piri area and that, there's a lot of harvests that already well and truly underway. Around the Clare Valley, there's uh, I notice there's quite a bit of still green product in the paddocks there. But depends where it is. Every location has got different times for, for the harvest. So the harvest across all of regional South Australia will go a lot longer than normal because of the current conditions and the, the rain and so forth. But so it will go a bit longer in my view, as I'm seeing, and I'm talking to a lot of the farming communities out there. there have be a lot of the, the product that would have been, already started to be uh, harvested hasn't been anywhere near ready at this particular point and also there are lots of moisture still in the ground so they can't get the harvesters out there to actually do any of the reaping so it will go a bit longer than normal
2: minister for regional roads jeff brock speaking with christian coming there right across to the bureau of meteorology now for what is shaping up to be definitely a finer week than we've seen in in recent weeks tom bowick a senior forecaster with the bureau of meteorology can elaborate though good afternoon Hello there, Cassie. It's a bit of sunshine around
1: this week. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty mixed. But uh, as you as you were saying, it looks like being uh, uh, dry for a fair bit um, of the, the the next sort of week to come. So um, we. Do have some cloud at the moment over, I guess, sort of the agricultural area in the west of the state, but there's some gaps in there as well, and certainly further north over much of the pastoral districts and the flinders there, uh, the skies are pretty sunny already. So... um as far as any shower activity goes, it's very light activity around uh, this morning. Uh, I've had 0.4 of a millimetre at Cummins there on the Lower Air Peninsula and just some light falls around the 0.2 mark, 0.2 of a millimetre mark through uh, Mount Gambier and, and Robe there. So some some very light activity around but, uh, yeah, certainly not much in that. Uh, and uh, the weather's largely under the influence of a high-pressure system which will be centred to the uh, southwest of the Bight um, uh, later this evening uh, and that, that system's going to be pretty slow moving over the next few days. So ending up to the south of the Bight uh, on Wednesday, around about uh, it's close to Tasmania later on Thursday and then sort of moving out into the Tasman Sea for Friday and the uh, weekend period there. So um, as that uh, high keeps moving eastwards, the conditions will be remaining pretty stable over the states. So uh, um, for Tuesday then, uh Temperatures still on the cooler side, um, but uh, perhaps up up a degree or, or so. But uh, uh, and, and a little bit of clouds still around in the south. Maybe some light shower activity still for the southern coast and the southern Mount Lofty Ranges and the southeast districts. Um, but um, yeah, not going to be much in that as all and uh, at all. And cool to mild in the south, grading to mild to warm in the north um, for Wednesday. Uh, just a chance of some of those isolated light showers still in the lower southeast, but it'll be dry over the remainder of the state and some partly cloudy conditions for the southern agricultural area, but should be sunny elsewhere and there may be some early fog patches around. Thursday should be dry and mostly sunny throughout. Temperatures up to mild to warm in the south grading to warm to hot for the uh, north and west there. And uh, on Friday should be dry throughout. The only slight uh, chance of any weather there is in the far northeast later. There's a bit of moisture just coming in there. Could see a chance of a, a shower or thunderstorm, but just in that northeastern corner there. Temperatures by that stage will be warm in the south, grading to hot in the north and west. And speaking of hot, for Saturday, it looks like uh, conditions throughout the state should be uh, mostly hot there, and even reaching very hot in the far west. And that's um, with uh, winds sort of turning northerly as a trough moves into the west of the state. And that trough will bring a milder, fresh uh, southerly change across the west later on Saturday. Uh, That change will then move over central and eastern parts on Sunday and reach the far northeast of the state later on on Monday there. now, not much weather where that changed, just a chance of some isolated showers near southern and western coasts on Sunday and perhaps over the agricultural area and in the west on Monday, but as I mentioned, not expecting a lot of weather. Um, and speaking of rainfall, so the total's up until the end of Friday, from now until the end of Friday, expected to be up to only one millimeter for southern coasts, southern Mount Lofty ranges and over the southeast districts, possibly reaching up to two millimetres in the lower southeast. And some thunderstorm activity in the far northeast on Friday. Could see some totals up to two millimetres. Back to you, Cassie.
2: Thanks for that, Tom Bowick there with the forecast coming up for the uh, tomorrow for the Western Inland. The Upper Western will be sunny tomorrow. It could get quite windy, 20 to 30 k's an hour. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 13 and 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach around 30 degrees. The Lower Western will be mostly sunny. Again, a bit of wind around, uh, getting from about 15 to 25 kilometres an hour. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 10 and 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching up to the mid to high twenties. I'm Cassie Huff. We've got more to come on the country hour as we approach 1230.
1: You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: Hello, welcome to the program. It's great to have your company today. Workers can be hard hard to come by in any industry, but some employers are having success looking at uh, perhaps hiring outside the box when it comes to to looking for new people and perhaps uh, attracting people who are not normally attracted to their work.
0: The traditional recruitment processes, so your interview resume style recruitment, can often cause distress and workplace understanding and support is often poor for autistic people. So we have this subset of our community that was ideally suited to supporting our animal care systems that we just weren't tapping into.
2: I'll have more on that, especially as we work up to International Day for People with Disability later this week. also calls for a food plan, a national security for food plan uh, are underway. We'll take a look at what they're calling for as well. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the news. Good afternoon. Looks like Matt isn't there. Thanks. Uh, We'll try to catch up with Matt. You'll definitely hear Matt at about one o'clock when it comes to the normal news headlines, but he seems to not be here for the headlines. But as I was saying, labour shortages in the agriculture sector have forced many to look outside the traditional box to find employees. It's not only primary producers and agribusinesses that are widening their focus. So we're going to catch, touch base with that, but I think Matt might be there. Now, good afternoon, Matt.
10: Indeed. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is set to be formally condemned in Parliament for secretly swearing himself into additional portfolios. Censure motions are rare and a symbolic measure used to criticise an MP's actions. The federal government is to set up a new committee to review social security payments each year. The establishment of the advisory body follows a request by the independent Senator David Pocock in return for his support of the government's industrial relations legislation. The 12 members that will include representatives from unions, business groups and economists. And the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has apologised to Australians who took out home loans based on his that interest rates are unlikely to rise until 2024. Towards the end of 2020 and for nearly all of last year, Dr Lowe said interest rates would not likely rise until 2024. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thanks for that. We did get the news headlines in the end, but as I flagged before, it can be hard to find work. It's regardless of what industry you're in. But as the uh, week for, works towards International Day of People with Disability this Friday, this Saturday, I should say, Saturday, December 3. We thought we'd take a look at how a labour shortages in agriculture have been forced to look outside the box to find employees. And it's not just primary producers, agribusinesses are widening their focus as well as Karen Hunt reports.
11: It's almost a tradition that agribusinesses source employees from people that have grown up around farms or forestry or even fishing. However, many are now finding those people aren't necessarily there or even interested in agribusiness as a career. Shelley Nolan, Senior Director of Human Resources at Nutrient Ag Solutions, says diversity is the way forward.
12: Yes, I think we need greater diversity because we are an industry that is evolving and changing. And I think, and what that means is, you know, we have a broader requirement for different experiences, skill sets, and certainly different, you know, other industry experience. And so we also need to appeal to a greater pool of candidates. And so I think diversity brings greater commercial acumen, greater awareness, and really helps particularly innovation. So I think that's one of the reasons that we certainly need to attract a greater diverse group of candidates into the business and into agriculture. Certainly we need to be looking at graduates that come into the business and attracting graduates that typically may have looked at other industries. We're looking at What's the female talent pool look like across the business? And then what are some of the other areas from a diversity point of view that would actually really bring a lot of different experiences and thinking into the industry that previously we wouldn't have? So, you know, what are some of the minority groups that we want to look at and how do we actually attract those type of candidates into our organisation? I think our previous experience would be that we've recruited people that we know, we've recruited people that have similar experience and background, and we haven't been very diverse in our approach and probably even comfortable around looking at different backgrounds of people and different experiences. So, you know, we've recognised this, you know, we've done some self-assessment and we've looked at our organisation and said, actually, you know, we're not going to grow and develop if we continue to look and hire similar thinking. So that's something that we're very aware of.
11: Shelley Nolan, it's not a new concept... For the past six years, the Sunport Group has been employing young people on the autism spectrum, helping them become involved in intensive pig farming. Kirsty Richards coordinates the Autism and Agriculture Program and says simple changes to routine procedures can make a huge difference.
0: The traditional recruitment processes, so your interview resume style recruitment, can often cause distress and workplace understanding and support is often poor for autistic people. So we had this subset of our community that was ideally suited to supporting our animal care systems that we just weren't tapping into. So what autism agriculture has seen is Sunpork modifying its recruitment, employment and support systems for both autistic people and non-autistic employees to provide an opportunity for autistic employees to not only join our team but to become real valued assets to the business. Currently we have nine permanent autistic employees at Sunpork each individual works to their individual capacity. So that varies from full-time to part-time hours. In addition to those nine, we have another four employees who've worked for Sunbook and they've used that experience as a stepping stone to permanent employment both within agriculture and other sectors.
11: Would you have gone down this path if the labour shortage in agriculture, and especially in pig production, which is you know not considered one of the sexy jobs in agriculture, would you have done it if that situation hadn't
0: been there? Oh, absolutely, we would have. The drivers at Sunpork are as much about inclusive, equitable employment being the right thing to do. It's as much about that as it is about um, meeting employment quotas but I guess the nice thing really is that in achieving one outcome, we have been able to address the other. So the two the two go hand in hand. John
11: Martin-Brown from forestry company McDonnell Industries in Mount Gambier echoes that sentiment. The company recently received a national award for assisting people to overcome barriers to employment, which include not only disability, but also mental illness, language issues and criminal backgrounds. So what prompts a company to go down this route?
3: There are a couple of aspects to it. On the, if you like, the purely mercenary, hard-nosed business side of it, the labour market is definitely tightening. And so the wider we cast our net, the better. And so we've been able to access a group of employers who traditionally would have been potentially overlooked. The other aspect which is perhaps sometimes overlooked is that as a a long-standing local organisation, There's a a sense of commitment to helping build a a stronger local community. Generally people who have been unemployed for a significant period of time or have one of the identified barriers, and it gives them an opportunity to develop a work habit, getting used to the idea of getting up every morning, coming to a workplace, performing work consistently through the day, etc. That's been uh, very, very successful in in introducing people to the workplace and enables us to observe people as they develop.
11: Is this something that you would recommend to other employers to just look at to see if it will fit into their operation?
3: Oh, absolutely. There's the material benefit of we actually do get very good workers who we might otherwise have have overlooked. But there's also a social benefit for the community and the people who were unemployed and therefore less productive and now being given an opportunity to be productive and to feel productive in themselves. But there's also uh, it's a morale booster for the workforce here. People feel good about doing good.
2: McDonnell Industries, John Martin Brown, ending that report from Karen Hunt. Now, if you've had success in hiring someone from a non-agricultural background, perhaps with barriers to work, and it's been a success, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one, or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Particularly. Ahead of the ABC's coverage of International Day of People with Disability on Saturday, December third, there's more on uh, this story on landline. Uh, the, the report on farming with a disability there as well. So there's lots of coverage coming out through the week. But I'd love to know your story as well. I'm sure there's lots of success stories out there, particularly in agriculture. Like I said, text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It is. 21 minutes to one.
3: You're
1: listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: We all know just how much everything is costing, including food at the moment, which is partly what has driven an alliance of food producers and distributors to take to Parliament House in Canberra to call for a national food security plan. The National Food Supply Chain Alliance represents convenience store operators, farmers, meat workers, independent retailers, hospitality workers, warehouse and transport operators, and spokesperson
13: is Richard Forbes. It's quite unprecedented. In order to try and stabilise rising food prices. What we're calling for is quite unheard of, but we need it because of changing times, and that is the establishment of a national food security plan, where we look at all the disruptors, we bring them together under one strategy. We've never had a food plan. We have a renewable energy plan. We have an education plan. We don't have a national food plan. Unless we have a national food supply chain strategy, Food prices will continue to increase. We believe 6 to 7% next year, putting more pressure on Australian families, and this could last even longer. They're talking about longer droughts, longer heat waves, uh, more fire days, and heavier rainfall events. So we're here to, and we've been meeting with government and opposition, calling on them from industry to support the establishment of a national food security plan. In our view, that's the only way that we can help stabilise food prices and reduce the food shortages that you've been seeing on your shelves. Richard Forbes, who was speaking on behalf
2: of the National Food Supply Chain Alliance in Canberra. Now, speaking about the food supply chain... Uh, I mean, if you're a horticulture business and the the fixed costs like your fertiliser, your power, all sorts of things like that are sky high and showing no signs of stopping, how do you save costs to try and remain viable when the best deal you can negotiate means an extra $150,000 to your power bill? Well, Belinda Frentz says there are price increases in her hydroponics business at every corner and it's not just the increased power that's pinching. So
14: you anticipate the big stuff. You know, obviously, labour increases, then you've got energy costs that everybody obviously is aware of that's, you know, quite well covered in the media. But getting right back down to the bare basics of the business, we're even looking at our cleaning products being increased by 8%. Now, these are increases that you just don't think are going to occur, especially after the communication around it being, you know, the getting shipping into Australia and not being able to get products and availability. But the input costs are just not settling down. They're not finding a base and a medium at the moment. So it's literally everything that you can think of within the business is increasing. And, and the absorption of those increases is just not viable.
15: So how much are we talking here? You, you mentioned in the dry goods category, cleaning products. How much has that increased?
14: That is increases 8%. Now, that's on top of increases in the last 12 months as well. We just renewed our energy plan as well, just came off a four year plan. We went from tariff rates of eight to nine cents up to now 25 cents. So that's an increase across the board of about 150,000 a year. And we knew there were increases coming, but didn't realise the actual size of them and the impact that that would have. I mean, we're operating cool rooms and processing machinery 24/7 so we don't have the capacity to just turn things off or you know we're looking to switch and save with solar but once again that's that's potentially only going to take $20,000 off the bill so this is all this is all margin impacting
15: and that, I, I would assume, is the best deal you could get in terms of the tariff that you're on, seeing an increase of $150,000. you are saying you could switch to solar, but that might only save 20000 What other things could be done? Where do you make up those costs?
14: Well, it's actually coming to the point in time that you can't, you know, um, we're transporting all of our goods, so we have our diesel increases as well with our fleet of trucks. It is literally just eating into margins at the moment. It comes to a point that we need to accept the fact that we can't produce the same amount of products for the base price that we have been. There has to be increases across the board. Growers are working really, really hard to mitigate that risk and to try and decrease costs wherever possible. You throw in weather to that and the fact that You know, we've all had, you know, amazing rainfall and up until now it's had significant impact across the industry, but now we're back irrigating. So you've got the energy costs associated with that as well. So coming into Christmas, all businesses all businesses in horticulture and across agriculture will be concentrating, obviously, on reducing costs to ensure that we can keep costs down for consumers. But at the end of the day, the new reality is we have a price point that we have to rise and meet so that our businesses can be profitable and sustainable for the long term.
15: This takes us back to the price point for horticultural products, and it is a very complicated situation and and the way that's determined depending on how your produce goes to market but do you think more broadly there is something that has to change in terms of what the consumer is willing to pay is that is that the angle this has to come from?
14: Absolutely I think it's the fact that we need to respect the cost the input cost that goes into the production of that plant so other than producing a packet of chips in a controlled environment where there's energy costs that we've all, you know, been made aware of in the media recently, a plant grown in, in the environment has so much more impact around the weather and the the control points around fertilizing and irrigating and and it's, it's no longer that we can just grow our plants for a certain cost. The cost point has increased and therefore there has to be an acceptance that there is a, a price increase for fruit and vegetables. But I think more as a, as a consumer as well, we need to celebrate that and celebrate the fact that recognising that growers work really, really hard to reduce those input costs and sustain that price that we have for so long. But we're dealing, like every household, with these unprecedented increases and there needs to be a flow on so that we can remain in a sustainable, profitable space and continue what we're doing. And that in the sentiments around the industry at the moment is the most important conversation that we're, we want to have with consumers. Is that when you do see a price increase, recognise the fact that it is real and that other than the weather implications, we have this long-term input cost increase that we're trying to deal with.
2: Belinda Frentz from Coastal Hydroponics, based uh, inland from the Gold Coast, speaking with Ali Felton-Taylor there. Now, we're talking a bit about food and how expensive it is and trying to to keep it affordable, but also allow people who are actually producing it to to get paid for what they've produced. And so one way that a company is is trying to deal with this is through waste. Now, we've heard troubling stories about farmers dumping fruit and vegetables because they can't be sold or they can't find pickers or the food doesn't meet the supermarket specifications. It's actually estimated that a quarter of all food grown is wasted before it even leaves the farm, but the CSIRO has been working with an Australian startup. Up to turn that waste into healthy snacks, as David Clawton reports.
16: NutraV's first processing module is located on the farm of their parent company, Fresh Select. That's one of Australia's largest brassica growers and a long-term coal supplier. The waste cauliflowers, broccoli and pumpkins are picked and sorted in the mornings, washed and then dried and turned into powder, which is used to make the snacks all on the same day. I met NutriV CEO Raquel Said at the CSIRO's Ag Catalyst event in Sydney, where she explained more about the concept.
17: NutriV is a food manufacturing business but essentially what we're trying to do is take food waste from our partner farm, which is taking all of the vegetables that can't be harvested um, and turning them into high nutrient vegetable powders and those powders are now the star ingredient in our uh, NutriV v goodies snacks. So something that would otherwise have gone to waste is now being repurposed into a food that Australians can enjoy. Right,
16: and there's a lot of waste, isn't there? Like, and that's a big business. They're supply, uh, yeah. supplying coals. So they're doing thousands of tonnes, I imagine, every year. How, what's the waste stat from that operation?
17: Yes, that's a really good question. Uh, just pure waste, there can be you know, up to about 15 tonnes a week of waste matter. Um, that's excess leaves, stalks. Um, it can be from a, an oversupply. It can be weather damage. Sometimes they're just out of spec, too big, too small. That's um, a large number of waste that we're, we're dealing with
16: been a heartbreaking problem, hasn't it? We've seen uh, fruit and vegetable dumped all around the country for yeah, all sorts of reasons. That's
17: right, that's and right.
16: And so this maybe could provide a solution to that problem.
17: That's right and you know if you were only in Melbourne a couple of days ago you would have noticed that we got a large amount of hail in spring. That kind of environmental impact can cause a lot of damage it's real, it's there you know those crops will be damaged, they will probably be rejected because they you know they don't look a certain way or they've been um, impacted so it's a real life example of how we can be taking that produce um, it might not sound sexy vegetable powders but let me tell you we're making an impact and we're able to make a difference to farmers and to Australians, so I think it's a good initiative to get behind.
16: So what do these snacks made from waste food taste like? I asked a couple of people at the conference.
11: <laughs> wow, that's crunchy. Very crunchy.
16: And it looks more like a, like a breakfast cereal almost, or a twisty but brown.
2: Yeah. Nice bite sizes. Very crunchy.
3: Yeah.
2: I like them. Oh,
3: really?
17: They taste like, um, have you ever had those uh, bean snaps? Like very similar, but like quite sweet in comparison.
16: So this is um, created from waste stuff on the farm that doesn't meet specs or there's no market. So they, they grind it up, dry it, turn it into a snack like that and deliver it to the supermarket the same day. So is that is that appealing?
17: It's very cool. I like that. I like not wasting food.
16: Andrew Lawrence from the CSIRO was involved in testing and proving up the equipment to grind up and dry the vegetables, before handing it to NutriVee to commercialise. He says there's a big health advantage in snacks produced from powdered vegetables.
5: What the goodies actually bring along is those two servings of of vegetables in each pack. So, why fresh is best, um, you know, this is an easy easy way to, to consume those vegetables. Dr. Michael
16: Robertson is the director of CSIRO Agriculture and Food, which has been working with a number of startup companies on new ideas in agriculture.
9: It's a beautiful example um, of uh, us turning what would be waste into a high value product. So it's a really lovely example of how agriculture is getting more and more conscious about recycling and reducing its environmental footprint. But not only that, it also is a great example of how we can use our pilot plant to help startups like Raquel's test the technology prove that it works, and then take it into their own business and scale it. Meanwhile, Raquel Said is planning the next
16: stage of the project, which is about scaling up the business.
17: The uh, initial idea was the plant that we have in Werribee South was almost our sort of um, feeder and testing plant to see is this concept actually viable. We understand that that salad bowl region in Victoria isn't the only waste issue uh, catchment area. It's a problem all across Australia, right? So if uh, the fact that it's working now, we've got plans to actually put drying hubs across different growing areas of Australia. And we think that could really make an impact to farmers all across Australia.
16: How much this equipment will cost on-farm is not clear yet, but consumers can taste the snacks now as they're being distributed through Coles
2: was David Courtton with that report, and uh, it's great to hear about food not being wasted and able to be repurposed so uh, we'll keep following those stories because a lot of effort is going into that space these days finally today so we something that does go off quite easily and uh, and can be uh, wasted if you if you buy it and you you find it's already uh, bruised or perhaps uh, it's, it's um, you buy it hard and then it ripens too quickly. And that is the um, avocado. But uh, you might have not, uh, missed it because there are no black skivvies or fancy audio visual displays, but we have actually entered the age of Avocado 2.0. In a world first, University of Queensland PhD candidate Onkanath has created the near complete genome sequence of Hass avocados, the most detailed map of the genetics of the popular fruit ever made. Centre for Horticultural Science Director Professor Nina Mitter says the work is a team effort after years of challenging research.
18: It is not an easy task, and that's why for so long I used to say in my talks that avocado being a woody tree and a large genome size was even beaten by Brussels sprouts in not having that information available. So it does involve a lot of analysis, a lot of sequencing tools which have advanced as we are progressing, and that's what has made it uh, possible for us to map this genome to the chromosome level. So not only that we have 98% of the genome sequence or the DNA sequence with us, we know now that avocado has 12 chromosomes on which these um, genes are located.
19: How does that change things for researchers?
18: If you think about the genetic potential of a super fruit like avocado, it's still yet to be unlocked via those modern breeding programs. So If we have a high quality genome, that serves as the basis not only to understand how avocado has evolved over the years, but it is an excellent tool in the development of varieties which may have increased fruit quality, resistance to pests and diseases, or the issue of shelf life of avocado. So these are the kind, these genomic tools are important. And to provide those insights,
19: does understanding the Haas avocado build a better pathway to understanding other varieties as well?
18: Yes, we started with Haas, of course, you know, 80% of the consumption globally is the wonderful Haas, and we know that Haas is a hybrid of Guatemalan and Mexican races, so it is the principal cultivar. How in we started with Hass as the main genome, but we have also now sequenced 55 other cultivars and rootstocks of avocado. So we have that information available that we will anchor to the Hass genome to understand what's happening in other other uh, varieties as well. And
19: so, how do you anticipate this research will be used?
18: What this research does is sets the basis now for how to take. This avocado improvement forward, whether we use it in breeding tools, whether we need to understand what makes some of the rootstocks disease resistant, whether we can have some markers associated with some of the lines. So that's where the power of the genome will lie in making how can we have has version 2.0 which is even better in some of those traits
19: and for the growers who are planning future orchards does this mean that they may end up with a fruit that overcomes some of the challenges they
18: face a long pathway, as always, you know, you start with gaining insights and preparing a toolbox that can help in those future visions. The ultimate aim is, yes, you know, to enable growers to have better productivity, better profitability by understanding these analyses. So this is an important key step. Um, you know, avocado it belongs to family Lauraceae, which has 25, 2,500 tree species. And there are very few edible fruit trees in this family, like cinnamon, bay laurel, sussiferous. So having a done avocado genome really absolutely provides an important tool because we can look at some of the uniqueness of avocado now you know avocados has very unique sugars there are seven carbon sugars or heptoses. Uh, avocado has a very unique fruit ripening system which is based on cellulases avocado has a very high potassium content so these are the kind of tools now we will have to understand what makes this fruit really healthy and how we can make it better
19: And for consumers, would the end product be an avocado where some of those genetic levers have been pulled and it lasts longer, tastes better, provides even more health benefits?
18: I'm I'm sure
19: we will all love that. So
18: yes, it is a step in the right direction, but the first step in that direction.
19: So where does this work put Australian researchers in terms of our global impact on understanding avocados?
18: are very pleased to say that at least in the world of avocado we do have a very unique leadership space now so in my lab we call it innovating avocado we are not only working on this genome as we have assembled we are looking at how to propagate avocado better how to understand what makes it root better how to understand the disease resistance not only that we are also looking at how to conserve the biodiversity in the avocado germplasm using techniques such as freezing it in uh, liquid nitrogen at minus 196 degrees centigrade. So absolutely on the world map as far as avocado research is concerned.
19: What is it about them that really fascinates you? You know, I
18: had never tasted an avocado in my life before I came to Australia in the year 2000 and absolutely love this fruit. So much goodness in it, so many good qualities. And also as, as we are moving towards not only food, but nutritional security, I feel avocado has a very big role to play in that space.
2: Very interesting, the work they can do when it comes to genomics. Now, Centre for Horticultural Science Director, Professor Nita Mitter, speaking to Callie Buchanan. You can find out more on the website. Just go to abc.net.au rural. Deb's texted in to say, what is this obsession with the hu- that the human species has with perfection? It's ridiculous. Food waste is abhorrent uh, just because it doesn't look right. Thanks for that text, Deb. That's it from me, but Caroline Winter has a lot more coming up this afternoon. Good afternoon. Hello, Cass. So, what is on the agenda for you? Oh, my goodness. Chock full is what I would say. Um, We're asking people whether, well, how far you would go to protect your home from a crime. We heard last week from a grandmother in Modbury. She's had to take out private security because she was broken into twice. So, we're going to have a look at Neighbourhood Watch, which people ask about a lot, whether it's still around, how you go about it. So, we're going to take a look at that one. Also, have you got your letter to Father Christmas yet? Oh uh, no! But it was very much a bargaining chip that my mum deployed. Is it? Wow. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Well, you'd be you'd be right at the front of the queue <laughs> then. Uh, Santa, oh. Santa mail is accepting all letters now, and it's more accessible this year than in previous years. So we'll be having a chat about that one too. No. Oh, well, it is almost December. It is almost the silly season. Well, I suppose we are in the silly season. More to come on your ABC local radio with Carol Winter this afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock.
10: Afternoons with Caroline Winter.
1: I had the Steve Austin doll. Did it make the... Who of this era did not run around in slow motion doing that?
10: Caroline Winter.
16: ABC Radio, South Australia and Broken.
17: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.